What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi. And once again, we are back with Pariah Nation. This is going to be the last episode of six, uh, season 16. I am super, super excited. And as usual, we have Jamil on. <laughs> this is like, I don't know, the 10th time you've come on, man, honestly. Uh, but yeah, don't worry, guys. Uh, Jamil is here and he's definitely here to stay. If you haven't already, please check out his podcast at Dogla Chat. You should be able to find it on all platforms. Uh, but yeah, Jamil, just you know, just tell us what's going on. What's new? What's new? Assalamu alaikum, wagwan, everyone. It's your boy Jamil here. Um, yeah, so no, Adnan, when Adnan uh, mentioned Dogla Chat, it then reminded me that I have a podcast. Um, I know that I have not been as active. Um, I started a job recently, and you know, life this pandemic. Um, but I'm definitely going to, I'm, I'm, I'm inshallah, definitely getting back to it. I'm probably going to drop the previously recorded episodes, although they're very out of date. Um, <laughs> but no, I definitely do want to share them because those conversations were beautiful. Um, you know, I am also that TikToker, also known as Dogla Boy. And yeah, no, I'm just always happy to be here with Adnan. This conversation, you know, Adnan posted it on his story and he was like, who wants to have this conversation? And I was like, like, dude, like you need to have somebody that's from, like you need to have somebody that like this directly influences or like has like connections to and so like that's why I'm I'm glad to have this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much once again, Jamil, and also to everyone else. I might actually do a part two of this, but I might try and see if I can get in touch with the head of the diaspora division at the the African Union. They're on LinkedIn, uh, so I'm gonna try and reach out to them. <laughs> I'm gonna see if I can get in contact with uh, the head of the diaspora division at the AU to just sort of educate us about like what this whole sixth region thing is about. But I'll try and get, I'll try and give you a bit of a a summary, but the sixth region is essentially, you know, Africa has five regions, like legally recognized regions by the African Union. And the African Union this year, I mean, it's already been something that's been in the works since like 2010, 2011, actually. And even in 2014, you can find papers written about it as far back as 2014 from my recollection. Uh, But you, essentially go to the website and you can search the sixth region and they've effectively recognized legally as the African Union, the diaspora, the African diaspora as a region in quotes. And they said they did this mainly because of the fact that this group is actually quite, quite influential on the African continent. And you might, might be asking how you can read some journals that out then you'll actually find in the late 2000s towards 2010, you actually find that there were, <coughs> there was over $20 billion in remittances that were sent in just one year from the diaspora to Africa. So remittances, you have people making investments, uh, people call it black tax when people go abroad and then you, know, you get a, a corporate job or something like that. And then eventually you start sending back money uh, to your home or to your family, et cetera. This is essentially why they recognize the region. But now there could possibly be another element to this where they might introduce legislation that will allow for diasporan Africans to gain citizenship in any African country. And that just doesn't, it doesn't really matter like which one. You can just apply whether it's Egypt, whether it's South Africa, whether it's uh, Kenya, whether that's Uganda, etc. You can basically apply for citizenship and essentially go towards settling there. So that's what we're going to discuss today because 
there's it's it's a very multifaceted conversation to have, especially considering that there's some diaspora Africans, especially in the U.S. Um, and generally, like you know, Dominica, all these different places that don't consider themselves African. There are some that do, and also there's people who consider everyone African. You know, there's there's just a lot of conversation happening. But generally speaking, from Jamil, like, what are your reactions to this idea of the sixth region? And um, if you could gain citizenship in any African country, which country would it be? Yeah, so my, my um, uh, what's what I'm looking for? My interpretation of like even just the sixth region in and of itself, I think is really beautiful. Um, you know, so funny enough, I'm part of an organization in South Florida, uh, well, in Florida, right? The Florida African-American Student Association. And that is like broken, it's broken Florida up into, um, five different regions right and so I remember doing a like a project where we saw that like you know there's like five regions in Africa there's five regions that Florida's broken up to we thought that was kind of cool but then to like also know that like now I as a Jamaican exist within like this sixth region um of Africa I think it's really cool especially for like someone like me who is a African diasporan, but not in the traditional sense of that like my family was living in Africa and then we left you know I am the, the fourth great grandson of enslaved, you know, Africans in Jamaica, right? So, you know, when I think of that, to know that my forefathers were stolen from this continent, right? But now here we are, you know, some generations later and the continent has now opened up its arms and said, hey, look, you know, here's a seat at the table for you, right? You know, you, you, you were taken from us, right? We lost you. Um, which I think that's really what it is, right? We lost you, but we want you to know that here's a seat for you at the, the dinner table. When we sit down to watch TV, there's a seat for you on the settee. So for me, it's really, it's really nice to know, um, especially as somebody who's, you know, a genealogist, a historian, um, having feel like it, it does just feel like another a family member has embraced you um, and welcomed you back into the family. Um, you asked the second question, oh, where, where would I want to live? So if I had to choose anywhere in Africa, um, so I mean, considering the fact that now the diaspora is considered region six, I'd say Jamaica, but no, um, all jokes aside, I think I'd probably have to say um, Nigeria. And, you know, that might, that sounds like, a, oh, you know, every, everybody says Nigeria. Why don't you pick somewhere else, man? Well, let me, let me tell you why, right? So in doing my genealogy, genealogy research, right? Um, you know, testing with companies like 23 and Me and Ancestry, um, I've like been able to find like actual African matches, right? You know, of course, if you match with somebody, it means you're related, right? So these are fourth cousins, these are um fifth cousins to myself and my nanny G and my mother who are Nigerian. Um, most of them, actually, I think all of my Nigerian matches have been Igbo. Um, you know, I have some Ghanaian matches or um. Well, I, yeah, they have some Ghanaian matches, but the majority have been Nigerian matches, specifically Igbo. And so having, you know, seen that bigger collection, I think I'd just be more inclined to go there first, um, just to, you know, have an understanding. You know, I always look at the Africanisms and Indianisms in Jamaican culture. And so, you know, the fact that Uno, right, in Patwa means like the American version of y'all or you all, right, is directly correlated to Igbo language, right? Or in Jamaica, if you have a very fair skinned person but strong African features, you call them red Igbo. Um, like those are, and like, those are just like the Igbo things, right? But like poto poto, which means mud in Yoruba, um, just like those, 
things, right? Those traditions, those linguistical traditions, cultural traditions. Um, I it was it's just really and truly why Nigeria would be my first um, stop if I were to do this tour of Africa. And that's a really interesting answer. I I personally think in terms of Nigeria, that's also a country I really want to visit. I think I've always wanted to go to specifically the any of the house estates to be honest like um and also specifically Kano seems nice uh, I mean I just want to visit man I just feel like it's really interesting the way in some places they still have Ajami written like so it's this Arabic script that's you know writing you know in Hausa and I just I find it really interesting like Nigeria seems like a very very cool country so much potential there honestly so yeah great choice man and I, w- I wouldn't doubt it man and <clears throat> I like the fact that you brought up the cultural connections between African countries and Jamaica and the fact that it's not like you can clearly just draw a line of separation. And I think that's why for me, I'm a bit more sympathetic to this idea in a conceptual sense. So in the sense that it's actually a form of uh, reparations, if I can call it that, uh, for, for example, some of those families that participated in the slave trade <clears throat> it's more like actually you are displaced because not necessarily because of your faults or like you're there not because it's your fault but it's because there was something that happened <clears throat> and you eventually your ancestors were traded or somewhat kidnapped you can't obviously tell the specific case but i generally think that it would be a really interesting idea <clears throat> that african countries are saying that hey listen um you've been stripped of this opportunity to experience your culture and to actually build a community in what could have been your home right or at least just to just get that sort of uh, I'm going to just call it like you know I want I don't want to say spiritual unity but cultural unity within yourself the fact that you haven't really been able to experience that as fully as other people or other Africans on the continent have so I think for me from a conceptual sense alone it's it sounds like a good idea and as I said, you know, these, these borders are very much, you know, they're very much manufactured. So even when people say that, oh, you know, <clears throat> I'm going to go to Ghana, I'm going to go to Nigeria, it's, it's not necessarily like, you know, you're going to get the exact same village or the exact same area or the exact same kingdom where your ethnic group was. <clears throat> but it's now actually a chance for you to resettle and sort of just say that, okay, this is my culture or it could have been my culture. I'm just curious in being able to actually like, you know, put that to rest. It's a form of closure, I think. And then I guess now it comes to that point where, you know, there's a lot of people who are gonna be mad by these statements. And I think we can, we can sort of narrow them down to a couple of groups. On one hand, <clears throat> you have people from the West. Uh, I don't wanna just generalize, but some of them specifically in the US, and some in the UK as well, <clears throat> who totally divorce themselves from the African identity. They don't see themselves as African, basically. They will see themselves as, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm American, that's what I am. Uh, my culture is totally different uh, and that's the end of the story. Then you have Africans who are not entirely cozy with this idea in the sense that like, you're not African if you're from the West. You're not born in Africa. You're not born with the culture. So it's a disrespect to, you know, cultural norms for, for them to just be given that sort of status immediately. That's also another group of people that's sort of against this. But then if you want to go into like 
more nuanced point of views. You have extremists, if I may say, groups such as, for example, the indigenous AA movement, basically people who deny the slave trade. Uh, and I don't want to obviously, you know, package their views all into one sort of opinion, but this is my experience with most of them is that the slave trade was a lie and that Black people originally came from uh, the U.S. and they were the original Native Americans. That's their belief. Then you also have the Hebrew Israelites and they have their own specific belief and we'll get into that. But then you have a group that's also like in the middle ground, which is more of it's a leaning Pan-Africanist, if I, if I can say that, not necessarily Pan-Africanist, but you have people who had wanted to essentially come back like Marcus Garvey. <clears throat> and you also have people who just support, generally support the idea of people being able to, in quotes, come back home with Ghana, of course, leading the way for the year of return. So I've said a lot, but let's start off with Indigenous AA. Thoughts, Jamil? Thoughts? Yeah, so this, um, apparently, I, I, from what I'm starting to understand, this idea um, has actually been a, a, a longer standing idea um, in America, right? Um, however, it's just now becoming apparent to me. I've never really known anybody that held these views on, until I got onto social media and saw certain um, people hosting rooms and, and doing these types of things. Actually, I was on TikTok the other day and I saw a girl, um, she, she, so she presented it in a, um, she presented the notion in like a conspiracy theory type of way, but it was something that I very much recognized that like, if this girl got fed the, like, you know, the wrong information from a very convincing person, she might end up believing, you know, even if she made up the, the theory as like a joke, right? And so it's this idea that um, the slave trade, all right, so there's various ways that people of this think um, this mindset view, right? So there's those who don't believe the slave trade happened at all, right? Um, so you have those who don't believe the slave trade happened at all. You have those who believe the slave trade happened in reverse, as in they took people from a, the, the North, from North America and brought them to Africa, um, right? So that's, that's, that's two things to um, be mindful of, right? So if you ever come across these people, it kind of gives you an idea of like the mindset that they have, where some think, Slave trade never happened. There are others that think um, that, you know, it happened from the United States to Africa. Now, what this mindset comes out of is the fact that, you know, and, and they'll, they'll, they'll use various writings to, to try to convince you. So like one of them is the writings of Christopher Columbus. Um, so what I think is always, what I think will always be hilarious about that is so that America is very good at appropriating the histories and cultures of various people. And one of those things is, and I will say Jamaican history, but like Caribbean history, right? And so one of those things is Christopher Columbus never landed in the United States. What is the 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 technical argument is that Christopher Columbus has land Christopher Columbus did land in the United States. Where he landed is the US Virgin Islands. The US Virgin Islands is a recent addition to the United States. Right? So like British Virgin Islands is like Guam, it's like um the Philippines, right? It's like overseas territory. It is. It it was not part of the thirteen colonies. It, so if it was not part of the thirteen colonies. It was definitely not part of Spanish America, right? And I say this so that people understand, right? So yes, Christopher Columbus technically stepped foot in America, but not in the sense that you're thinking like he stepped on mainland America. He didn't even step foot on like any of the surrounding islands. Um, I have a plane flying overhead. Um, That's okay. 
I have a question though, just on that, because I believe the first journey of Columbus, he landed in Trinidad and Tobago. That's why it's called Trinidad, because he tried to call it like the Trinity, like name it after the Trinity. So he landed in Trinidad. Then obviously there was the whole, uh, you know, in quotes, discovering of the area. But didn't he actually land in mainland for like the second or third trip? Christopher Columbus never set foot on mainland America. Christopher Columbus, um, from what from what I remember learning and from what my mother has always told me was that he landed in the Bahamas. Um, Christopher Columbus landed in the Bahamas. Christopher La- Christopher Columbus landed in Jamaica. Um, uh, what is now known as Dominican Republic, um, Trinidad, right? Um, possibly some other Caribbean countries, but Christopher Columbus at no point ever stepped foot on mainland United States soil. Right. And so the reason why I mentioned this is because a lot of the people of this Aboriginal American movement will say, but Columbus wrote in his journals and Columbus wrote in his journals. Okay, cool. So even if so, this this is what I'll say. Right. So let's say let's say you're right. Right. Let's say that slave trade never happened and Columbus saw these people and he wrote about them in his in his journal. He wasn't talking about your people. You're Northern Americans. Christopher Columbus landed in the Caribbean. So if if even if even if your ancestors right never came from Africa and were always in North America, where Christopher Columbus landed was the Caribbean. So if he's describing Caribbean people, he'd be describing people who might have been my ancestors, but not yours, right? Um. So that's Question. one thing. Right? Sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt, but you're talking about are you talking about that specific narration, uh, from Columbus's journal that says that he saw uh was it dark-skinned people and they or painted, like you know they painted yeah. themselves they painted yeah. themselves red and black and yep yeah and That's then also stuff. they they said that they saw people sailing from the south east and they were carrying gold spears and they were dark-skinned something like that is that what you're talking about right so the the one i'm talking about doesn't mention the gold spears but it mentions okay. people who were painted like black and red and white and stuff like that um, so that's that, right? So like my viewpoint of that is first and foremost, um, it that's when you have those conversations with like a, people of like a, like the Aboriginal American movement, it's a very tricky conversation to navigate um, if you walk into it not understanding what you're talking about. Because before Europeans, before Africans, you know, landed in America, they were indigenous people, and it's well known that Europeans intermarried. It's known that Africans intermarried, right? And so you have, and so like what this now does, right, is you have people like genuine, what I would say like African-Americans, right? Who have indigenous ancestry, right? They're called Afro-Indigenous people, right? They are black Indians, right? Because like, depending on where you live, like the terms are different, right? Like these people exist, right? they, They have that family history of African and indigenous, you know, some of them are enrolled members in the tribes over here, right? But because of this movement, it creates like a, it casts like a doubt and like a shadow of a doubt on the legitimacy of real people. Because you have other people co-opting their their identity and co-opting their history. And nine times out of 10, what they're saying isn't even factually right. Because, all right, so understand that like the Native Americans in America did not just live in America, right? They had regions of the map where they occupied. So I live in South Florida. And and for the most part, if you live in the United States, you know, like the big tribes, like the tribes you'd see in like Westerns, like the Apache, the Comanche, the Lakota, the Sioux. But then, you know, like the the tribes like in your area, 
right? So like I being from South Florida, used to watch some commercials and you'd see the Mikasuki tribe, you'd see the Seminoles, right? So like we know like Osceola was one of like the heroes of the Seminole Wars, right? So knowing that, right? So knowing that like in South Florida, the, the indigenous people that lived here were, you know, Seminole, um, Seminole, um, Mikasuki, Creek, I know Creek Indian, well not Creek, um, let me let me not even mention those, right? So like I know those groups, right? Imagine somebody from Florida, right? They say their family history has always been in Florida. They say they're Blackfoot. Florida's, if if you when you get the chance, look at a map of Florida, right? Or even just look up an Indigenous people of America map, right? The Seminoles are all the way down in Florida. The Blackfoot are all the way up in Man in Montana, right? Borderline like Montana Canada type thing. Right. So like that's the other thing is that some of them are like claiming tribes that geographically would not even make any sense. Right. And so like that's the thing. So like a lot of so like not only are they now co-opting the history of like actual people. Right. Um, and in America, that's the thing. Like you have this whole blood quantum law for the indigenous people. So now you have people who are actually of that like that ancestry and heritage fighting to get acknowledged, fighting to get their rights, and they can't because now not only was there like um, litigation keeping them back before, but now you have these people who don't want to associate themselves with Africa co-opting an indigenous identity, right? And one of the common one of the most common things I've heard them say is this, right? I've heard them say um you know like I don't like and I have this philosophy I don't believe in arguing with people's grandmothers right because they'll say my grandmother said this my grandmother said that right and you know grandmothers are smart grandmothers are wise right but the, but this is what they love though I've heard them say right um my grandmother has never talked to us about Africa but she talks to us about being indigenous and so then my comment is this right the correlation of your grandmother speaking of indigenous history or indigenous culture and things like that is very much more likely right because let's say you know let's that that indigenous like indigenous like in, in, i want to say like a word but i can't really pronounce it properly right but like that indigenous spirit right exists in like exists in america especially like in the south where enslaved people and indigenous people live like kind of live side by side in some cases right like it wasn't that hard for an african-american to pick up herbal healing traditions or cooking traditions from indigenous people, right? And it's it, it's not that hard to pick that stuff up while forgetting, you know, it's now eight, the 18, the late 1800s, right? Which means like the last Africans came after a certain point, even after the illegal trade, Africans stopped after a certain point, right? And so like, I can make that argument for me. Oh, I'm not black. I'm not African. I'm Indian. Because most of you all know Dogla is you know, from the subcontinent and African, but but because my nanny has never told me about Africa, but because my nanny has never mentioned Africa, but she mentions India, well, of course she mentions India because that full-blooded Indian, well, first of all, the full-blooded Indian was her mother. The full-blooded Indian that came from India was her grandfather, right? Who knows who was the last African right on my nanny's African side of the family and so the same thing happens here in America you have some people you know sure they might have some indigenous ancestry also what was very common was you know Afri African woman in America would get assaulted right they'd be assaulted by white men they'd have these children sometimes these children came out fair-skinned and to kind of cope with the trauma that comes from all of that they pass 
some pass for white, some pass as Native American. And so now you have that folklore in the family of there being a Native American, but when you look, there's no Native American. And so like, that's my view on the, the Aboriginal American, you know, whole thing, right? Is it, it's dangerous, it's dangerous to black people, it's dangerous to indigenous people, it's dangerous to Afro-indigenous people. And, and quite frankly, it is a spit in the face of African ancestors who did not make it across the Middle Passage, who made it across the Middle Passage and, and lost their lives fighting for freedom or just trying to survive, that you would then disengage and, and separate yourself from that for, for, for whatever it is you think you're trying to achieve. So that's my thoughts on that topic in and of itself. Uh, I totally agree with you, bro. I remember trying to argue with one of them and we're just talking about I mean, what, what sort of evidences are you denying now? I mean, this historical consensus that <clears throat> around, around, okay, more than 10 million and around 12 million uh, people were sent across uh, the Atlantic on the Middle Passage. So what, what are you truly denying? And the thing is that people actually buy into this stuff and all of a sudden they just cut off the African identity. And it's like, it's just so, it's so confusing for me. And I think for, sometimes that actually comes as a form of compensation or internalized racism to the point where like, you know, I'm actually not going to be, be African. And that's sort of just what you're trying to do. You're trying to escape that identity because you want to look for a safer identity in this post-colonial, or should I call it a neo-colonial status quo. So definitely agree with that. And even just to move on to other groups that have sort of just you know, <laughs> very quick to like deny the Africanity. Um, we've already mentioned some people in the West just in general being able to say that, oh, you know what, actually, no, I'm, I'm not going to be African. And I don't think that people actually realize what, I mean, do whatever you want. I could care less, right? Uh, I'm not here to police what people uh, feel or like how they want to identify or whatever. Like you just do you. Right? But I'm just talking about practicalities and things over here and criticizing other people, for example, for considering themselves to be African. But also, I would just also just like to register the fact that I think it's unreasonable if you are Black and you're living in the diaspora to not consider yourself African. One example of clear cultural exchange, if you want to like, you know, talk about not even the UK, we're not going to talk about Europe, we're not going to talk about the US, let's talk about Brazil. And let's talk about how capoeira is literally derived from a Congolese art form, right? And you can trace that back. And the, <clears throat> the people who are actually involved with that, right? They, they actually have, you know, some form of chains of narration that go back to the Congo, right? Um, what we would, sorry, what we would consider the modern day Congo uh, and Angola as well. Right. Um, <clears throat> uh, and the Bakongo kingdom, etc. Uh, I hope I said all of that right. I hope I didn't mix them up. <laughs> but yeah, generally speaking, that sort of area for mainly from what we would consider now modern day Angola and those specific kingdoms there. That cultural exchange was so strong to the point where if you look at places, for example, like Pernambuco, there was actually a city that was set up by escaped enslaved people and they set it up and they actually re-established a form of African royal, royal hierarchy, essentially. And Pernambuco stayed there for like almost 80 years until um, the Dutch and the Spanish, et cetera, uh, teamed up with other 
uh, mercenaries to take it down. So they really wanted to preserve that culture, right? And I'm pretty sure that Jamil, you can attest to that. I mean, you've done your genealogy studies and you've talked about, for example, how uh, some people that were traveling across would want to preserve, for example, their Islam, which was a huge part of a, a Western African culture and still till today is, right? And I remember reading that journal on, you know, uh, enslaved uh, Africans that were Muslims that were taken to Jamaica, for example, and many of them had actually memorized the Quran. So they decided to like write it down and they, they were writing it down from scratch, essentially, because they wanted to preserve it, right, and teach that to their children. So my question is, like, if that's how your ancestors were acting, right, it's like that shows you how much it meant to them. And then also my other argument about why I think it's unreasonable is one of the main reasons why you are segregated or why you are discriminated against is because of your relationship with the continent itself, Africa. And to a large extent, blackness is intertwined with Africanity because most people on the continent are dark skinned, right? So for you to just be like, oh, actually, you know what? I'm going to totally divorce myself from African identity, yet your entire life is basically focused on fighting against systems of oppression that are oppressing you because of your African identity. It's almost like you're denying it. And as Malcolm X had put it, you know, you can't hate, uh, you know, the roots, right? And then love the tree, basically. I'm paraphrasing, right? How do you expect to love the tree when you hate the roots, right? So, I mean, that's, I that's my perspective, to, yeah. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I do want to add to what you just said, right? Like when you mentioned the, um, you know, like the connection between Capoeira and the Congo, right? We talk about like how Islam was preserved, how Islam was actively being preserved when it came from Africa to the plantations of the Americas, right? When I say Americas, talking North, Central, South, and the Caribbean. Um, but also when you, and, and I think I might've mentioned this before, right? And I did a presentation just, um, I wanna say maybe two or three days ago, right? No, on the second, right? I did a presentation on the second um, talking about this, right? Where I was like showing people um, slave records. So like slave returns were a system of keeping track of enslaved people on the island of Jamaica and other British Caribbean countries after the outline of the importation of slaves, right? So we're talking these records start in 1814 and they run up about until um, 1832 because you know 1833 is when the Ab abolition act is signed, right? For some of the people that were enslaved, right? They had their names, John, Mary, Sue, Bob. Some of these people also had like surnames, right? Like after a while, um, enslaved Jamaicans would just kind of pick up a surname, whether it be from the person that owned them, somebody they admired, a baptismal name, right? Things like that. You saw African names, right? And when I say you saw African names, it's predominantly the Akan system of day names. Of course, they're not spelt the same, right? Because the Africans are saying what they're... So like, let's backtrack, right? On the records, it makes note of who's African and ter in terms of who was brought from Africa and who was born on the island, right? And so, of course, the Englishmen, they hear Kwashiba, right? And they don't think K, they think Q. So it's Q-U-A-S-H-E-B-A, -E right? Instead of K-W, right? Um, Kofi, which is K-O-F-I, becomes C-U-F-F-Y. But you see these names right? Not even just that, you know, when you mentioned Islam is really what brought it to my mind. I saw a record 
for an enslaved woman by the name of Kate, right? Kate was African. Kate was 100 years old. However, her name wasn't just Kate. Her name was Mundingo Kate. That Mundingo is the British, like not even the British, right? But that was like at that time when they would make notations of where the, the African originated from. Mundingo refers to Mandingo from the Senegambia, right? You had, on, so like now you know that Kate is an, a 100 year old African woman. Now slavery, the importation of Africans ended in like 1813, which means that she was a grown woman. This was, an, this was a senior citizen that was put on a ship and brought to, America, brought to Jamaica, right? She's on, by, by the time they do that census, she's 100, she's African. Her name is Mandingo Kate, which means that maybe she's still practicing Islam because that's a, that's a grown woman, right? I know she would be turning in her grave to hear that if she had a descendant who was walking around saying, I'm not African. When the African nation ethnic group that she is associated with is documented in the slave record. I've seen Ebo and I've seen, and, and you know, you know the, the British don't know how to spell. So it's E-B-O-E, -E, right? Ebo Sue, Ebo Kim, right? I've seen Chambo, I've seen Papa, Popo, all these different Nago, Etu, all these. And you're gonna, you're gonna sit there and say you're not African? And, and, and honestly, at, at least, the, at least the, the Aboriginal movement is rooted in some type of truth. It's a distorted truth. Because one year, you might have indigenous ancestry, but you are not solely indigenous, right? And, and, I, and I know the other, the other group you had on your list, I, I can't wait to talk about them. So when you, whenever you're ready. <clears throat> I hope we'll have enough time. Um, uh, but yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you, bro. Um, especially on the last part. And, you know, just the fact that a lot of these people that were enslaved, the dream wasn't even just to get free. It was just to get home. So now imagine if you're given that opportunity. Like I tell people this, like, do you know how crazy that must have been? Imagine if, for example, you're of West African heritage, or if you're from West Africa right now, or if you're someone who's African-American and you have lineage from West Africa, um, yeah, it's actually going to be West Africa. Uh, just think about your ancestors. And for example, if there was a slave rebellion in the 1700s, like imagine talking to each other in captivity and just thinking, oh, you know, maybe one day we'll get to go back home. And then you just laugh it off. And then 300 odd years later, that is a reality. Like, You've been given an, such a good opportunity, in my opinion, just to be able to just uncover, like, you know, what, you know, what your ancestors were actually struggling for. Like, one, why did they want to go home so bad? And why did they want us to preserve our culture in this way, right? I just, that's just something for me to consider. It's like, obviously, I don't have any roots on that side. But for me, it's just really like, I mean, if you're, if you're not going to consider yourself, like, you know, to, you're going to cut yourself off from your ancestry. I mean, it just seems like it's almost like I feel like if I was in that position, I'd be sort of indebted <laughs> to, to my ancestors and that their struggle. And just like it's not like I have to go and live there, but just go to find out, you know, like what's what's actually like what was my culture like? Because I feel like, you know, history is one of those things that's really impacted 
um, you know, especially you guys who are currently, you know, in the West, like, you know, it's really impacted you in that specific way. And you didn't choose to be born there either. So I think that's just something that's um, very, very interesting to note. And now we're going to move on to like the last one. And then we'll, we'll go into some more practical questions about how the sixth region identity classification is going to be put into place. Cause that's like, it's a legal thing now. Right. But I want to know your thoughts on, you know, the, the Hebrew Israelites and how do you think that they would react to this policy? So how do I feel about the Hebrew Israelites is it, it's, it, 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 oh my gosh, man, it, it's a lot, right? But really and truly what it boils down to is it's, again, um, Afrophobia, right? This fear of being seen as African, right? And so while the Aboriginal American thing is rooted in at least a, a partial twisted truth, right? You now have the Hebrew Israelite movement. And so for those of you who don't know, it is a movement that basically um, states that African-Americans and not even just African-Americans, right? But like African-Americans and those in the um, um, Caribbean as well as indigenous Americans. Um, so again, this is, a, this is a, um, one of those conspiracies that has not even conspiracy because I don't want to give it any validity, right? It's one of those misguided notions that has two, two sides, right? So you have those who abide by the chart, the ye old chart, right? That, that breaks down the 12 tribes of Israel Right. And it says if you're Haitian, you're from the tribe of Levi. If you're Caribbean, you're from the tribe of Benjamin. If you're um, a, then they like break up the, the Native American tribes differently. So if you're Seminole, you, you're one thing. And then if you're, you're Choctaw, you're another or Cherokee, you're another thing. And it's it is it is a mess. Right. So that's one side. The other side doesn't believe in the chart. So there's like an infighting between the group because some believe in the chart and some don't. Um, but what happens now is they believe that. Um, they believe they started in Africa, but that they themselves are not Africa. They believe that now, if you are Christian, um, of course, then you would you would kind of track with their belief. Um, but if you're Muslim or any other faith, really, you wouldn't track with this belief, right? But their belief is that um, after Jesus, peace be upon him, was cru uh, crucified, according to Christian theology, right, a group of of Hebrews fled the area and traveled into what is now Nigeria, right? And so what they say is, well, that's why when, when the, the British, when the, the Europeans came to enact the slave trade, you know, they, the, the Africans, you, you, you know, you know they, they, this is what they say, like, oh, you know, like they say Africans sold Africans. No, the Africans didn't sell Africans. The Africans sold Hebrews into slavery. So they'll say that's why, because you know, like people will say, like, oh, that's not fair to say Africans sold Africans. Well, they, that's what they'll say. They say, well, they weren't Africans, they were Hebrews. They sold the people that were not of them, that did not look like them, that were not all of this stuff, right? Um, and so they also very much follow the sick. There, there's a copy of the King James Bible from like, I want to say 14, 15, 1600s. That's the one they use right? That's the copy they use, like an old, old version of the Bible, right? Um, excuse me. And so that's like, that's their premise, right? It's like, we are not African, we are Hebrews. And so we were, and, and then they also will do this thing where they say that they are the real Jews, which is very anti-Semitic, right? It's very anti-Semitic. Um, they'll tell you that America is Egypt. They'll tell you that, um, uh, They'll, they'll say like where they came from in Nigeria, that's where Jerusalem, no, 
that's not they'll say that in Ghana Ghana is where Jerusalem really is because I guess at some point during the there was an empire and there there might have been a city called Jerusalem so they're saying that Jerusalem is is in West Africa right and that Egypt is in America right and and so they say that the Bible is not necessarily a religious book, more so it's a history book, right? And if you're in America, you'll see them on Saturday mornings. They're standing on the street side in their purple shirts. One man is holding a Bible, another man holding a mic, yelling at people. If they see you, um, you know, like the Hebrew Israelite movement has like a lot of issues um, that are tied up, like legal, like le like like they like they're they're committing crimes. Like there's certain crimes that they like members of the commit, right? Um, and so like they. I mean, I, I can't even say that they, there's any like positivity that comes out of it. It's not based in anything, you know, historically accurate. Um, you know, they and so because they kind of have like this very outdated, you know, we, like mindset, right? So like they also have this thing where like um, the seed comes from the father. So you are whatever your father is. So for example, when Vice President Kamala Harris was running, a lot of them were saying she's not black, she's white because if you know her father did like his family's history and he mentioned that he descends from a white man um but like if you look into that story right um it's not a white man mixed man black 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 until you get to Kamala's dad it's white man mixed daughter which throws their whole she's a white woman out the window um you know so like yeah like a lot like you know in Jamaica, we have a saying like, say wheel and come again. I wouldn't even tell them to come again. I just say wheel and keep turning. Cause it's, it's again, it's Afro, it's Afrophobia. It, it, I have not seen it do anything of benefit for the black community in America. Um, and this is coming from somebody who served as the president of the black student union of his college for two years, the director for another two years and had a member, had a person who identified as a Hebrew Israelite in the club. and. So this this is coming from like firsthand experience that that they that I've I've seen nothing of positivity come out of it. Yeah, I I think it's just I don't know, man. Like the thing is, uh, you believe what you want as usual, but like don't don't harass other or intimidate other African Americans into embracing that identity, because that's what I'm saying. It's like for me, it's like if you don't want to accept that concept or if you don't want to come back to the continent all well and good we don't want people here if they don't want to be here simple as right if anything it's that's a thousand times better for the african continent and i'm just trying to sort of interrogate those views and sort of trying to see what sort of pushback that we're going to have uh, but i think generally many people are excited in terms of visiting the continent if you look at ghana's year of return I think it almost raked in around a billion dollars in revenue and there was much considerably more people traveling from the UK and the US uh, and mainly just the diaspora in general. So I think that that's really important. And the thing is, I would love to get a South American perspective. Unfortunately, we were not able to find anyone or like, I don't really know anyone who's sort of in that situation. But technically speaking, Brazil is actually the country that's going to be most affected by this policy. Uh, you have uh, uh, technically, if you're going to count, for example, yeah, actually, yeah, you would probably have the most black people um, in Brazil in terms of like on a worldwide scale. Um, but yeah, I think that the most going to be 
they're going to be the most affected by this. I'd love to have gotten a Brazilian uh, who's actually from a black background to come on and just see what the opinions are. Um, and like, actually, to be honest, I mean, Angola also speaks Portuguese and so does Mozambique, right? And um, you can clearly see the, the links between those Portuguese colonies. So for me, I just find it really, really, really interesting. But now moving on to the practical side, and I guess a lot of people have many questions because you have people who are sending remittances back that indicates that generally speaking, if you, com- if you do comparative wealth analysis, uh, and for example, you have someone who's been paid salaries in pounds, like for example, if you get a 20,000 pound salary a year in the UK, and you bring that to Kenya, that's going to be a lot compared to the way it actually is in the UK. The, the cost of living is actually considerably cheap in many African countries compared to that of, the, for example, the UK or Europe or the US, right? So my question is, like, and this is probably going to happen, right? A merchant class or a middle class or a new section of the middle class is going to form. And that has made people worried. And I, I want to get your perspective on that. Because I know the thing is, in most cases, you might actually get um, a case where the citizens of a certain country feel either intimidated or they feel like people are taking their jobs, etc. And then you get this sort of backlash and in quote xenophobia as well. So what, what do you think will actually happen? I mean, do you think that there has to be something else in place to ensure that any sort of wealth inequality is mitigated? Or what do you think is the best way forward in terms of actually implementing uh, a sixth region return policy? Um, so no, that's a good question. And I think part of it could even just be like a, a like an educational type of thing right and so when i say educational i guess it's um like a crash course for those in the continent on the continent and those going back to the continent right because the last thing you want is a situation like we're in liberia um when the ancestors of the american liberias were were sent back to liberia and then they started enacting basically like a second colonialism of africa type of deal right um so I think to address that, there should be some sort of like educational crash course type of thing. Um, you know, even starting from like the school levels where like the, the children are kind of like learning about like the people like, like you know, in like a social studies class, maybe take like a week or two weeks, kind of like, but like do the bare basics of like understanding like things like that, just so like there's like a cultural understanding. Cause I think a lot of what happens when you do have these clashes of two groups, it's a culture clash. And there's like this thing where like, they're not speaking the same language. And I don't mean that to say like, one is speaking tree and one is speaking English. I mean, even if you're speaking English, you know, sometimes things do get lost in communication because not only is how you like the words you use, but it's like the cultural context and the cultural backing that you're coming from. Um, so I think that's one thing you can do. Um, I'd also really and truly say with regards to the, uh, the, the coming back, right? I would also say just a, 
honestly, that's really truly what it is, is I think there's like a level of education that has to happen for both sides um, to mitigate to mitigate any type of like wealth inequality. Because I think aside from that, there's not really much, at least that I can think of. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be a hard one, man, because I mean, okay. Um, we saw what happened in Uganda and I've mentioned this before. And, um, you know, the case where, you, <laughs> sorry, you had Indian indentured servants and uh, merchants who came to East Africa. And although, yeah, they did have a wealth advantage because the British gave it to them, right? So this is obviously a different case, but in some senses, it's similar in the sense that you have uh, an immigrant uh, class um, of people who are of a higher economic stature generally speaking uh, in terms of the cost of living and like you know the strength of the dollar strength of the pound strength of foreign currency basically right and they might actually form a new sort of middle class i i think that there has to be a way of unifying the community and i don't just mean that in the corny sense but there has to be deliberate strategies on how to do though you, you do that you've already mentioned education i think education is a good start in the sense that if you're going to sell a policy you have to get the kids involved you have to get the youth involved because uh there's actually a saying that you know uh this is not essentially you, you do not inherit the the world or like you know the the earth from your ancestors but you actually borrow it from your children uh that's an african proverb and i think it's very pertinent here because at the end of the day if you're going to create a class of people who technically might and statistically might have more wealth then, for example, the average African from coming from a certain uh, country, right, uh, when they bring back that those savings, etc., like you have to consider what sort of effects that's going to have in terms of generation wealth. So I think that that's something that the governments need to, first of all, also talk about. I had someone in my comments saying that, you know, the country should only, if you're not like a West African country, then the country should actually, you know, say that, you know, you should allow this or like not. They should decide in their parliaments and say, hey, is this something that we're ready to accept economically, et cetera. But also at the same time, I feel like it would be interesting uh, if there could be like, you know, some... Uh, some services or like, like some sort of service that you do as someone who's coming from the US or other places to, for example, either share your experiences or let's say, for example, if you're moving to the continent, you can't just, for example, have like a take relationship because that would be difficult to sustain. For example, let's say you have to like invest in a certain, a certain amount in a business and it's obviously proportional to how much you're able to like afford or, for example, you come and let's say if you're, you're good at teaching, you do teaching or something like that, or you work in a community project, stuff like that. So at least like it helps build community. And obviously, my idea is not perfect, but I think it would help iron out the small creases in, in that issue, because, sorry, in the, in the policy before it becomes a huge issue. And I guess the idea of like, you know, you investing in an, an actual business, it means that your wealth, for example, is not going to go circularly and then just be like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to uh, buy stuff for me and my family and that's going to be it, right? And we're just going to work on growing our wealth, right? It would be really interesting to see how encouraging investment and also just not just investment of cash, investment of time, resources from people who want to return back to the continent 
um i think that would definitely help in some ways shape or forms like what what are your thoughts on that though and i'm all open to you know criticism no i think that's a really good idea i hadn't even really stopped to consider that but you know having it set up in a way where like there there's like it's kind of it stimulates economic growth but also aiding those that are making that transition because that transition is a big transition right it's not just picking up and moving from one city to another city or from one state to another state, you're talking about literally crossing over an ocean. Um, and, and you know, some, for some people, right, depending on where they're coming from and to where they're going, there is a, like a language barrier. Um, there's cultural barriers. You might have been the religious majority back home, but now you're the religious minority. Um, ethnic, you, you know, I, well, we're talking about Africans, right? So not really necessarily ethnic minority, right? But for some of us, it might be an ethnic minority because there's a lot of mixing that happens over here. So, you know, like a Dogla going to Uganda might find it very interesting because of the dynamics between the East Indian merchant class and then the native Africans. Um, so I definitely think like, like what you presented is definitely a very good, uh, I think, yeah, it's, no, it's definitely a very good idea. Um. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's obviously going to be complex because, uh, I mean, it's going to bring us to our next question of, you know, which countries, first of all, which countries, like when do countries get to like decide and say that, you know, our economy is able to take this, right? You know, because I feel like, you know, in the the way things are right now, especially in different uh, parts of the continent, you have different economic situations and I feel like different economies are going to react to such a change differently. And then also like, is there going to be like, for example, like a quota on like how many people are coming uh, and how is this going to like, you know, affect like, you know, uh, population, for example. I mean, all of these are questions that are more practical and need to be like asked specifically. But for example, you might have a case whereby let's say there's a really popular country uh, that people want to go to. And let's say that countries like Nigeria, which already has a higher population, right? Then you're going to actually have quite a lot of cultural friction there, I'd say. Because you have, you li- quite literally have, in quotes, an other. And this is also like the, the next point that I'll get into of cultural clashing, not even just economic clashing, but I think it's going to be a mixture of cultural and economic clashing. And I think it might it could actually be dangerous. And that's the only thing that I'm possibly worried about. Because for example, you have some Africans who might view, you know, uh, people from the West as, oh, entitled, oh, uh, you've never had had it hard before, et cetera, all these different things. And I feel like it's gonna be, it's gonna take a lot of different educational processes to change the, literally the the culture of people towards a certain uh, type of other people. Because I think, it's different when people are tourists and they're coming in and they're circulating money and then they're leaving, but it's also a different thing if they're staying. Like, what are your thoughts on the cultural clash? No, I definitely think there's like, like you said, there's definitely a difference between those who are, you know, they come for a season, you know, a couple of months, a couple of weeks, a couple of days versus those that are like now actively like remaining. Um, you know, because like now it's not, oh, do we have enough hotel space? It's, do we have enough livable space? It's, you know, um, and, and I, you know, when I think about that, I think of places like Hawaii, right? Where ho- native Hawaiians and Hawaiians that live there, and I really, really and truly, I don't care about the Hawaiians that live there. I really care about like native Hawaiians, right? But native Hawaiians are telling people not to come to Hawaii. And it's not because of the pandemic. It's because native Hawaiians, <laughs> 
it's and and, and I hate that I, when I when I make that like kind of like laugh, it's not that I'm even laughing, right? But it's like the the thought process of this, right? Is that when you go to Hawaii as a tourist, right? The it, it, you're literally taking water out of the mouth of a Hawaiian child, right? And that's not me over exaggerating. It's because the hotel industry will literally like like native Hawaiians, right, are literally rationing water on the island because tourists on the resorts get first priority, right? There's places where there's like not enough electricity. There's places where there's not enough water, there's not enough food because that stuff is focused towards the tourist, the tourist sector, right? And so I think you have to think of it in the sense of like that. You know, if, you, if there's this mass migration to Africa and Africa is not ready for it, right? You now run this case of where, you know, you, you have like ghettos, Right, and you have these these trench tones and and these tenements where people you know are they're living well they're existing but they're not living, and so I I definitely think that there needs to be like that there needs to be like time to like each head of state needs to sit down and you know go over it and reason it before you have this mass migration because the last thing you want is you know you have a thousand people coming in, but you were kind of really only ready to support 10. So that that's my stance. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that, I mean, obviously my opinions are subject to change and uh, they grow with the research. That's what I always tell people in my podcast. So if you go back a, back a year ago and you hear me talking about Pan-Africanism or you hear me talking about a certain topic, my opinions most likely have actually become more nuanced, not changed necessarily, all the way through but that's that's what happens with all academics it happens with all uh people who are actually you know focused on critical thinking and all of that so i mean i'm going to say this but i could actually have a different answer next year but i definitely i think one thing i'm basically settled on is that it has to be a long-term thing i don't think that from what i'm seeing like even a country like botswana one of the reasons why it's also considered economically successful is because its population is literally like 2 million people, right? Uh, even like, you know, the different other countries, you know, Seychelles, uh, Mauritius, etc. <clears throat> and, you know, they have their own sizes of populations. I think that this thing has to be long-term and maybe even just done in waves, or maybe you have a, a certain quota that you or like waiting list or something. Like if people are interested, and the thing is, I know that that sounds like, oh, you know, that sounds so uh, exclusive, et cetera. It's going to be such a hassle. But at the same time, it's like uh, you're kind of trying to strike a balance because if you insert a large amount of people into one country who up until, I mean, like, you know, how, how many years ago, maybe 100, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, had almost, uh, you know, basically no relationship with the country. And then you add them there, right? You're sort of just throwing them in the deep end. And you're also throwing that country in the deep end uh, because now it has to deal with, obviously, people from different wealth backgrounds and not also people from different cultural backgrounds. Maybe you have Brazilians who are coming through to Angola, or maybe you're having someone from the UK come to Nigeria, someone from the US come to Nigeria, right? It's, it's going to be so complex. And I think that this is, this is something that can only be sustained if it's done long-term, right? <clears throat> if it's done long-term, that's what I, genuinely, uh, what I genuinely think. And honestly, just as, as I said, it just depends on 
the 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 government of the country and how it decides to you know deal with that in and of itself and as we come to a close i just want to ask you know perhaps one more question uh and obviously i mean the problem is like you know for legal issues you kind of have to ask these questions it's not like we're trying to like gatekeep um africanity all the way per se although gatekeeping is useful to an extent uh but i mean where do you think we should draw the line <laughs> about like for example like you know who should be able to if this policy goes through like you know who should be able to you know come back basically um so who i think should be able to come back i think it's is really any and truly anybody who wants to come right i don't think you know i i disagree with the aboriginal movement i disagree with the um hebrew israelite movement i disagree with the xenophobic aspects of the fba and ados movement right um however if a trip if a trip or repatriation spurs their embrace of africa their acceptance of their true african ancestry and identity um if it does that then i i i would hate to be i would i would hate to go to bed knowing that i was the one that might have stopped it right um because then also the thing is that what happens with these movements right is they will take they 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 will take one thing and represent it as another right so because you know that the aboriginal movement shuns africa and shuns africa you think the logical thing to do is to say oh then we just won't take them but then you're going to hear them saying and this is why africa doesn't want us because they know we're not from there right that's the thing so so before i now have to go back and say oh no it's because you said you didn't want anything to do with us so we don't want anything to do with you i said no come come right it's like a parent right you know growing up sometimes you hate your parents and you say, I hate you. I wish you were dead. I wish you were my parent, right? But what happens? Your parent says, come, come. I don't, I never really like you to you. Your head was really big. It was a 15 hour labor, but come, right? So it's the same thing, right? I think what happens is when you look at these groups, like I would say that, you know, the African diaspora, right? Especially those who um, are the product of slavery, right? Are these prodigal children. However, I would specifically say that like the ADOS, the FBA mo movements and organizations, the um, Hebrew Israelite movement, the Aboriginal movement, they are the most prodigal of the prodigal children, right? And when the going gets tough and the tough gets going, maybe that repatriation is enough for them to be like, I'm sorry, right? Or I don't wanna say like, I'm sorry, right? But like, like they realize where they went wrong and they embrace Africa. So I, I can't say, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say only full-blooded Africans, only, only up to mulattoes or, or sambos or quadroons or octo. No, no. If if you are of African descent and you find yourself longing for Africa, go. Yeah, the thing is, <clears throat> I generally, I generally agree with that, but I also do see an issue. <laughs> so let's say Becky or Andrew want to come to Ghana and get citizenship. Should they be able to do so with three percent African ancestry? Okay, I see where you're going, right? And no, that that's a good question. Um, 
So that, but then the question then becomes where, what is the, what is the cap off, right? Where, where, where are you ready to make that? Because I would then also present you with this, right? Um, you have some people, um, because now you're blood quantuming, right? And that blood quantuming is the same type of blood quantuming you see done in the indigenous community in America, where you have some tribes that say, as long as you are of descent, you have tribal access. Some say you have to be half. Some say you have to be a quarter and, and a third and a fourth and all these things. I don't think you can be a third, but like, you know, like, like, well, no, actually you can be a third, right? So like you have, you know, these different blood quantums and, you know, I, as you know, like the, you know, like slavery had blood quantums, right? You know, there was a certain point in, in slavery in Jamaica where after a certain point you were considered white or if your white father signed off on papers, you were white. So like to sit here and say, you know, um, I wouldn't let, you know, James Green, you know, because James Green, when he takes his ancestry tests, has 3% African. I mean, James Green might be the most down for the cause person you know. And if James Green is 3% African, that means further up, there were Africans who might have had the unfortunate, um, you know, occurrence of having been attacked by Europeans and they passed. But you have some people today who are fully African, not a single piece of European ancestry, but they spewed some of the most white supremacist talking points. And you have some people who have a little bit of African ancestry and they're the most down for the cause. And some of them don't even know they have the African ancestry. So, I mean, it, 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 that, like, that in and of itself, if you're talking about like what, like, cause then I have to ask you again, like, what is the, what is the blood quant? Like what, like somebody was showing me today on a record set, right? Um, in Texas, that Texas kept track. So, you know, like you, you, we know, right? If you're black, you're black. If you're a mulatto, that means you're half black. If you're a, a quadroon, it means you're a quarter black. Um, octoroon, you know, things like that. I saw a term. Adnan, the term was if you were 164th black. 164th in Texas, right? Um, actually, no, I'm gonna tell you what it is, right? Because the person texted it to me this morning. So I'm gonna tell you exactly what it was. And it blew my mind, right? The term is for it is called a sangmili, a person who is 164th black. That means the parent was a full-blooded white and a demi-mia-meluk. And a demi-mia-meluk means you're 132nd black or 130, yeah, 132nd black, right? So like then I have to ask you, if we're, if we're going to do this whole Becky has 3%, John Green has 3%, where do we draw the line? Because I think Becky and, 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 and Malik, right? Because in the state of Florida, right? If you had one black great-grandparent you were seen as black mm. and so you had people bright bra blonde hair blue eyes i hate that that's always the example we use brown hair green eyes right and he was treated just the same way i would have been treated so like i i have to ask you like if we're going to talk about like yeah. putting a cutoff point what is the cutoff point are you really because then this is the thing are you really accepting and this is something that i've, I've mentioned before if you if you have that cutoff point, are you telling me that you would rather take the anti-black, um, you know, the anti-black white 
supremacist talking points viewing black person because he's phenotypically and genetically more black than the octoroon quadroon uh sang right who is down for the cause and at every black um you know black lives matter rally because it's the same thing that happens here right you see where in the diaspora and i'm talking about africans whose parents grandparents great-grandparents all of them was living in africa and then they came to america and they had their child right and so now you have this nigerian born child living in america right and they've adopted american culture and when you ask them if they're african they'll tell you no my parents are african meanwhile their name is amadou matumbe right but my parents are african right and they they, they turn their nose at fufu and they turn their nose at igusi and they turn their nose their nose at jollof right and they they have no intentions of ever going back to nigeria right but you have africans who will say that person is more african than someone like me who looks at the africanisms that jamaicans and africans share who has a yearning for africa who who in his um TikTok bio says Indo-Afro-Jamaican because I acknowledge my African ancestry. And you'll have people who will say that effectively he is more African than me because he has what you would call, I guess, the hard identity of having like that direct link. And so like, that's why I said it, I would open it to everybody because I don't have the time, the energy, the emotional wherewithal um, to sit down and say who can and who can't based off of 3%. Because yeah. sometimes that 3% carries a lot more than that 97%. Uh, bro, it's, you put, I'm not going to lie. This is a question that it, it has two extremes. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, and I'm going to just be very honest, right? Because, bro, I'm telling you, I personally have, I'll give an example. I, I'm a mixture of several ethnic groups. And my grandfather's father was Punjabi. And from my knowledge, he is the only person in that lineage from my dad's side or within the range that I would consider claiming anything, you know, that has that specific ethnicity. Do I consider myself Punjabi? No. I don't think I'd go, I think for me, that's, that's going to be reaching, right? So for me, it's like, if anyone has a shred of African ancestry, they can claim this policy. I don't feel too comfortable with that. But however, I am also not too comfortable with setting, um, you know, a very hard line. But I'll, I'll tell you what makes me worry. Like, so for example, if the numbers are as low, as, I mean, there's a number where it's like, you know, I'm just going to be like looking at the person like, eh, what? It's like, you know, what's going on here, right? So if someone has like 3% or 5% or 10% and it's like, oh, Nigeria or whatever, or Angola or whatever. And they're like, oh, guys, I'm, I'm African. It's like, I don't know. That just puts me off. However, comma, right? Also saying th- something like, oh, 25% or, or your grandfather has to be, it just feels very rigid. And I don't feel like, I mean, it's good that we're having this conversation because it's actually going to be a conversation that they probably have at the African Union. And I'm probably going to try and ask the head of the diaspora division if this, uh, this is something that they've considered. 
Adan, can I just say two yeah, things go on, real go on, quick? Go on, go on. So you said, so back to the Punjabi thing, right? So you said it's your grandfather's father. Yes. Yeah. Right? So that's your great-grandfather. And he's the so only one you, with that ethnicity. Only one, right? And so you said you wouldn't, you wouldn't identify as Punjabi, right? Yeah. But then I would also have to like take your words and say, well, there's a hard identity and a soft identity. But even before I say that, India has a policy right, that they will grant anybody who, um, they, so they'll grant an overseas citizen of India card, right, so it's basically oh. like a visa, allows you to travel and all those things, right, now you can do this if it is you, it is you, um, or, or let me do it like this, right, so if it is your parent that was from India, your grandparent that was from India, or your great-grandparent that was from India, or you, right, so you, your parent, grandparent, great-grandparent, right um you just have to be able to prove the, the the direct connection from the indian to you and you get it right i know a lot of trinidadians and guyanese who go out and apply for it right so what then becomes funny is like someone like me who is the great great grandchild of the indentured indian can't apply for it but someone like you who is the great grandchild theoretically could right so like that's when we talk about like the hard identity and soft identity thing too Right. Secondly, I would then position maybe this, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you prove African ancestry. Yeah. Right. So for someone like me, I think it's kind of easy to, to prove that chain of like African ancestors. Right. But so as, as so that you don't get your three percenters and one percenters. Yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe they have to prove. Now, granted, that's, that's, I feel like is also, I feel like that's a little bit kind of Hercules, you know, last chores or last task or whatever it is type of deal, right? Um, sending people on a wild goose chase. But like, I don't know. Actually, I take that back. Forget I said that. That's a terrible idea. Um, but yeah, no, go, it's just because like, I, I understand where you're coming from. But like I said, like, I would just hate to Mm -hmm. of like like that that dividing line is a very thin line and i i'd hate to be the one to put it up yeah i'm not gonna lie i think i don't know at the end of the day man i think what it's gonna come down to because like i'm someone who studied law and like i know how policymakers policymakers like they they look at this i mean sometimes they they come up with weird answers <clears throat> i guess what they're going to try and do is they're going to give it a very vague term and they're just going to say anyone that you could reason reasonably conclude is African. So that reasonability means that it's up to the immigration officers and um, it'll be up to them to sort of decide based on, um, I guess, a lot of evidence, not just DNA evidence. Because also that's another thing, by the way. I not know, just I, DNA. I, yeah, yeah, go on. So, so, some, so when you were saying that, right, you're saying not just the DNA evidence, I think something that would have to be taken into account is that blackness the, the blackness does not mean the same thing everywhere in the world mm, right mm. and so because of that you know if 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 one country says the definition of blackness is 100% no matter what the admixture is but it has to be 100% sub-saharan slash north african right like then you kind of enter like some messy areas because then someone like me right or like a good portion of people who descend from slavery who have you know, some little bit of indigenous, some little bit of European, those of us in the Caribbean have a little bit of Chinese, a little bit of, um, you know, Middle Eastern, a little bit of Indian, right? 
but also because the reason why I mentioned this is because so like growing up, we learned the story of um, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, right? And so Plessy versus Ferguson was a case where a, so this is how they teach it to us in school. A black man got on a segregated train, sat in the white section and got kicked off the train. Adnan, it was not until I was in college that I learned that Plessy was an octoroon, which means oh, wow. he was one sixteenth black. When they show, so the thing is this, they'll show you a picture of Plessy. That's not Plessy. That's another man who was an octoroon. Right, but to give you an idea of what an octoroon looks like, look like a white person. It's a white, so like effectively, what happened was this white man was on the train and nobody was bothering him, and he was like, "Oh, by the way, I'm a little black," and they told him to get off the train. <laughs> so, like, I just, I like that to my, like that comes to my mind when I think of like how they would, like, you know, you know, screen who they choose to let in and who they don't is, you know, like I'm a little black. I'm a little white, you know, like, so that, that's just like another thing I wanted to mention. Yeah, I think when it comes to identity, bro, it's gonna, you're gonna end up with answers that just don't, they don't, have, you don't get clear answers when it comes to identity. And I mean, like, I really feel bad for the policymakers who are at the forefront of this, because no matter what you say, you're gonna make someone mad and you're gonna exclude someone who possibly you think should have been given this opportunity. Um, but I guess there's, there's more than one way to, um, to sort of look at it. And I mean, it's, it's a very, very complex question, but let me know what you guys think in, um, obviously feel free to DM me. I'm gonna just put out something on Instagram, um, probably the day before this podcast comes out. Uh, and I'm just going to maybe refresh it a week later or something. And I'm also going to just put it on Twitter as well. I just want to get people's ideas of, you know, like just get people's ideas of like, you know, if someone was actually, you know, say that I want to come back to the continent, what is your cutoff point? Like, you know, I just, I just want to know, or should there be a cutoff point at all? And yeah, but thank you guys so much. That's going to wrap it up for our podcast today. Thank you once again, Jamil guys, please go ahead and follow Jamil on all of his platforms it's at Douglaboy and you'll see it in the description I'm going to tag him in the Instagram post as well he's probably going to retweet it on Twitter so just have a a look out for that um, but as usual guys if you want to contribute to the cause of Pariah Nation help me turn this into a full-time thing go ahead there's a link in my bio if you want to contribute uh, and much love respect and peace to everyone else and I will see you guys in the next episode